Pike facing forward. Snow melt is a fancy word for water. Less than 1% of a strawberry's DNA is straw. Animals are nature's people. Time to bury your ice skates in the yard until winter. Shrews are here to stay. Most weathermen are illiterate. Never forget about the Pacific Ocean. If humans had stingers, could we be trusted to use them appropriately? So many stars. Welcome now to Out of All Doors. Hello, and welcome to the eighth episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent. Out of All Doors is a podcast about our wild, woolly, wonderful world when we wish we want what we were... Okay, I was trying to keep the alliteration going, but that isn't going to lead us anywhere coherent, so I'm just going to abandon the alliteration and tell you that this podcast is about the outdoors. Nature, animals, plants, trees, flowers, birds, outdoor activities, fish, weeds, fruits, stars, planets, moons, vines, crabs, the list goes on and on, just like this podcast will. Let me put it this way. This podcast is going to outlive you. If you want, we can put a little tribute to your life on here like we did with Jason, except less unnerving, I hope. We are now in the month of April, and you know what the scientists said back in the early days of our country, right? April showers bring May flowers. Now, many people, myself not included, have attempted to ignore the space between the words May and flowers in order to contort this scientific axiom into a riddle, the answer to which is pilgrims. But you can't simply disregard that space, and thus that joke is stupid, and it trivializes the real meaning of the saying, which is that the rain we often get in April results in flowers that grow in May, and that's it. There's no reason to push it further. That's plenty. When people say all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, no one says, then what does a dull boy make? If someone did ask that, they'd be run out of town on a rail, and that's what should happen to people who ask, then what do Mayflowers bring? Listen, the value of everything in the world is not dependent on what it brings, okay? If I come to your party, I hope your first question to me won't be, did you just bring a two liter of Dr. Pepper for yourself again? Instead, I hope you'll ask, how are you, Adam? Because you value how I am more than you value what I bring, and that's how I feel about May flowers. But we can discuss this more in May, because for now, I'm more interested in the April showers. I want to talk about rain, and I want to talk about those two tough friends of rain, lightning and thunder. Now, many people say thunder and lightning in that order, but lightning precedes thunder in nature, and so lightning precedes thunder in my speech. Do you often hear thunder before you see lightning? Yes, but your limited perception doesn't dictate reality, and that's good, because some of you, based on your limited perception, think you should be king of the world, and the rest of us know you would make a terrible king. Just terrible. Rain and its tough friends, lightning and thunder, have inspired lots of theories and legends from mankind over the ages. For example, ancient man thought that thunder was the sound of angels bowling. This was a popular belief until people realized that if thunder was the sound of angels bowling, then that would mean that heaven would have to have bowling alleys, and no one wanted to believe that. Then someone suggested the idea that perhaps the angels were watching professional humans bowling on TV, and they had the sound turned up too loud. The person who believed that convinced only one other person of his atrocious theory, but it worked out for him because that person he convinced became his wife in a lovely ceremony. Some people used to believe that thunder was caused by enormous winged, beaked, and feathered birds called, you guessed it, thunder-causing birds. 
The theory had something to do with the birds being the source of the thunder, like maybe thunder is the sound you hear when the thunder-causing birds' wings hit against clouds or each other. Basically, thunder-causing birds aren't very cognizant of how big and unwieldy their wings are, so when you get a lot of them in one place, surrounded by clouds, there are a lot of collisions, and that's thunder. One of my favorite theories about lightning comes from the Romans. They had a god they called Thor, and he was the god of thunder. Okay, well, this one's about thunder too, not lightning. Anyway, he had a giant hammer named Athena, and he had mighty arms. Both arms were equally mighty. And whenever the Romans heard thunder, they thought that meant that Thor was driving nails with Athena, like maybe building some sawhorses in preparation for a bigger upcoming project, or maybe building a labyrinth for a minotaur or whoever. One old theory that people had about lightning, though, was that it started in the middle of the air and then shot up to the clouds and down to the ground at the same time in both directions. We now know that lightning actually originates up in the clouds and shoots down to the ground, or originates in the ground and shoots up to the clouds. I forget which. There were also people who thought that if you could find the place on the ground where the lightning had struck, there among the blackened grass you would find dead worms. But it was later discovered that this was only true if there had been living worms in that area before the lightning struck. The lightning didn't actually deliver dead worms to the spot. And some people also thought the lightning was somehow connected to angels bowling, but they always had trouble articulating their argument, and then tried to switch it up and say that lightning was actually angels golfing. And then a splinter group said, no, lightning was actually angels shooting electricity out of their fingers toward the ground. But then they realized that that isn't a low impact sport favored by the middle aged, and the whole movement imploded, and most of those people went on to hold relatively conventional beliefs about everything for the rest of their lives. And let's not forget old-fashioned theories about rain. Many American pioneers, for example, thought that Native American rain dances were a load of hogwash, but then they'd turn around and spend hours a day washing hogs and never see the irony. To this day, many people still believe that if you're having a bad day, a miniature rain cloud will hover over your head, following you around and raining on only you. In reality, this only happened once in all of recorded history, and most scholars agree that the rain that fell on the poor morose fellow was actually not rain, but what modern meteorologists call a wintry mix. And we all have ancestors who believed that the worst thing that could happen to a parade was that it be rained upon. Nowadays, most parades proceed just fine in the rain, which is why, when we're about to ruin someone's fun by stating a harsh fact of life, we no longer say "sorry to rain on your parade." Instead, we say "sorry to kill everyone in your parade." Of course, in 2015, we pretty much have rain and its two tough brothers, lightning and thunder, figured out. But that doesn't mean we can't look back on the outdated beliefs of yesteryear and appreciate the inventiveness of our forebears. After all. Someday our descendants will look back on us and laugh at many of our beliefs too, like the government's belief that I should have to pay back my student loans, or your belief that the small hole in your pants would not become a gaping rip visible to all on international TV right at the most solemn moment of your speech. But we've got a lot more show to get to. Let's begin, shall we? After a few months of quiet on the beast discovering front and a fascinating glimpse into what the Saints' beast discovering process may be like, he has returned this month with a sketch of and field notes about a brand new beast. As always, I will describe the Saints' sketch of the beast and then we'll play you the recording of his field notes concerning the beast's behavior, mannerisms, etc. 
Okay, so I'm looking at the sketch here, and the beast is in the foreground, and really it's just a big blob with tiny legs and a tail, and it's lying with its belly on the ground and its big mouth pressed to the ground. In the background, we see a few people standing behind a rope barrier, like you'd see at a national park, and behind them are some mountains. Guzzler. When I was at the national park, I was hiding in a crevasse for days. I would watch the geyser erupt at the same time every day. One day, a crowd formed behind the gate, and I looked at the adjacent crevasse and saw the guzzler emerge. The guzzler had the hardest time walking, not just because his legs were underdeveloped, but it seemed like he didn't know whether he was meant to walk on all fours or on his back legs. To make matters toughest of all is he had about 20 feet of extra skin seemingly draped over a pretty tiny skeleton. Eventually, after much effort at slipping, oftentimes he would slip because he would try to take a step and he would step on his own skin and not even get traction on the ground beneath him. But after much effort, he made it up to the geyser. He licked his lips when he saw the water and was clearly excited and even shook a little bit. The crowd was disgusted by the mere sight of him. He put his face into the geyser as if to wash, but then pressed it downwards, downwards, downwards towards the base of the geyser until eventually he sealed his lips around the entire geyser. He drank and drank and drank, and what was once a disgusting wrinkly pile of skin began to fill. Before much time at all, the mighty geyser had filled the guzzler into a plump, shiny being. Finally, the little twinkle in the guzzler's eyes was extinguished. I knew that the water had run out. He had drank it all. The, guy, the guzzler raised his head, licked his lips, and tried to get back to his crevasse. Although now he was even more immobile than he was before. He tried to stumble, to waddle, but he was just too plump. He couldn't use his legs or arms to get anywhere whatsoever. As he gave up, I think he accidentally saw me, and I think he accidentally twisted his lips into a proud smile before he laid his head down and took a nap. On the last few episodes, we here at Out of All Doors have been doing an in-depth series of interviews on the subject of hermits. The segment is called Fundamentals of Hermitry, and it features our intrepid young reporter Cayman Bird speaking directly with real-life hermits on the subject of hermitry. Our blog, before hideous human monster Maya callously stole the URL away from us, was known as the foremost gathering place for hermits on the Internet. 
and we take our connection to the Hermit community very seriously. However, after last month's episode was released, I received a very pointed letter from a man who has dedicated his life to the study of hermitry. Because I am always committed to representing all sides of any given issue, especially one as important as hermitry, I'm going to read that letter to you now. Dear Adam, I am both delighted and deeply incensed by the recent interest Out of All Doors has taken in the fascinating subject of hermits. I am delighted because the subject of hermits is a fascinating one, and one that is far too rarely studied in our contemporary educational climate that utterly neglects the liberal arts and instead transforms higher education into little more than an overpriced professional training regimen. I am incensed because your investigation into the lives of hermits has heretofore been entirely amateur, philistine, and altogether lacking in scholarly rigor. To cite just one example, last week's episode contained a lengthy discussion of so-called thermits, without even mentioning the fact that the thermit theory was soundly discredited years ago and is no longer accepted by any serious hermitologists. I assume your ignorance was not willful, and I am writing this to offer my scholarly services to your program in the hopes that such egregious errors will not be perpetrated on your audience in the future. You see, I am, to my knowledge, the only scholar to have wholeheartedly and uncompromisingly dedicated himself to the academic study of hermits. As an undergraduate, I was granted special permission by the dean of Grand Valley State University to design my own major devoted specifically to an investigation of the varieties of hermits and their behaviors. This major consisted of two courses in sociology, one in anthropology, one in psychology, four independent studies, and 15 courses in dentistry and accounting, which fulfilled the requirements for my second major in dental office administration. My formal studies, deep and penetrating as they were, were only the grand, unparalleled beginning of my even grander and less paralleled independent postgraduate research. I have compiled my findings into a forthcoming treatise, An Exhaustive Taxonomy of Hermits, a shortened version of which follows below. I should note, at the outset, that I have arranged this treatise in the style of Ludwig Wittgenstein's Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus which consists of numbered paragraphs, each of which expresses a single proposition whose truth the reader may investigate independently of the others. I have done so because I consider the Tractatus the single greatest work of 20th century thought, a conviction that I maintain despite the fact that Wittgenstein later came to repudiate it. Wittgenstein's repudiation, I contend, was due solely to the greater loss of his mental faculties brought on in his old age by the syphilis which would eventually take his life. Further, I am told by experts that with his dying words, Wittgenstein repudiated his earlier repudiation of the Tractatus, an act which, I am convinced, was entirely unrelated to the syphilitic madness that had by that point ravaged his dying brain. In fact, I am so convinced of this that I include it as the first proposition in the subsequent treatise. 1. Wittgenstein's deathbed repudiation of his earlier repudiation of the Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus did not result from a syphilis-induced madness, but from his clear-minded recognition of the inner truth of this work. 2. The first and most fundamental distinction between kinds of hermits is between intentional and unintentional hermits. 2.1. Unintentional hermits include lost hikers, deposed rulers exiled to uninhabited islands, Japanese soldiers still unaware of the end of World War II, 
the homeless, prisoners locked in dungeons years ago and forgotten, animals by accident, lone survivors of nuclear holocausts, and astronauts who have lost contact with mission control and are drifting slowly and unavoidably further from Earth's orbit. 2.2. Standard examples of intentional hermits include contestants on hermit-themed reality TV shows, underappreciated fathers trying to prove a point, Bigfoot, animals on purpose, and, according to their myths, the gods of several tribal religions. 3. Hermits may also be helpfully classified according to their type of domicile. These varieties include, principally, hermits who live in caves, hermits who do not live in caves, but who stealthily take shelter in caves when the hermits who usually occupy them are not at home, hermits who live near caves, hermits who live in, near, beneath, or curiously far from trees, nomadic hermits, and hermits who live in minimally but tastefully furnished two-bedroom apartments in Grand Rapids, Michigan. 3.1. The reader might object to the idea that hermits may reside in minimally but tastefully furnished two-bedroom apartments in Grand Rapids, Michigan. You might so object, dear reader, but you would do so only at the risk of revealing yourself to be a vulgarian so benighted, so blinded by the coarse stereotypes of our invidious culture, that you would shamelessly advertise your ignorance before your clear intellectual superior. 4. Each of the previous types of hermit may be further divided according to the hermit's typical means of sustaining himself. Some hermits forage for berries and nuts in forests, parks, or temporarily unoccupied caves. Others capture fish with the use of homemade fish traps, which are ill-designed, laborious to operate, and ultimately completely ineffective. Other hermits venture into civilized areas, searching for discarded food in garbage cans, unlocked cars, and dumpsters next to you-like-Chinese restaurant. Still other hermits purchase their food inside you-like-Chinese restaurant with the income they earn as a part-time academic and full-time administrative assistant at Klein Family Dentistry. 5. The following characteristics indicate decisively that an individual is not a hermit, no matter how much he may otherwise resemble one. Banking with a local credit union that charges monthly fees for checking accounts whose balances fall below $500. Vegetarianism, straight-ticket voting, purchasing an unlimited data plan for one smartphone, and undervaluing the liberal arts. I trust, Adam, that your less barbarous listeners will bestow their full credence upon these propositions, and that the insight they provide will be taken to heart by the otherwise infantile correspondence you have chosen for your hermit-themed segments. If, as I'm sure is the case, you would like me to appear via phone on your podcast, I will consent to doing so, provided that you agree to cover the costs of any overages of my data plan that would result from the call. I may be reached at 740-361-3391, though I ask that you not read that number aloud on your program. Yours, John Greiston, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Hi there, uh, this is Matt Martin again. I'm here to share a final installment of Felton Hausch's writings. Um, in this installment, I'm going to share the penultimate scene from his final novel, Far Dark Light, in a scene that many call uh, one of his finest of all time. It's a paragon of outdoors writing, and it's most evocative. Uh, it's a real pleasure for me to share it. So, here it is. 
wended we through the coldening canyons as night descended like wrong reckoning. The sun escaped itself into the canyon's nooks and enclaves, darkness taking the place of light in some unholy inversion. Where else would we wander but onward and in, accepting the canyon's walls as a worser rewooming, the two of us reclaiming our pre-life? I pushed on head down and heartsick. Kratos whistled his endless awful tune, head high, head always high. His song raised bile to my lips even after having gone days without supping. From whence came the bile I'd thought so many times, but for answer I received only the silence of time, life's unsteady voyeur. Had I energy enough to do so, I would have made silent Gratis's chipper cacophony. Cries of calves being beslaughtered haunted fewer of my dreams than did that man's soundings. The remaining burrow we shared lurched ungainly, its back sway, its eyes weeping, its hope in exile. Saddle-sword and desert ruined, the burrow managed to glance onward, hoping always for the release of death coming nigh upon its moribund bad body. Death remained with all our third companion, hail as awakened colt, ever complacent, ever patient, ever damning us to soon eternities. Its skeletal hand pushed us as much as chance's fatty meat hook pulled. In ragbag puppets we were flopping and flailing and spilling our materia. I embraced a fatalistic fugue, letting naught say me nay, testing destiny by going only forward anywhere my legs took me, resigned to dispense with navigation and charge forth heedless, for any dead end would have only an alternative of death. No, I cried suddenly as Kratos attempted to board the poor burrow. I feared the animal would presently buckle to dust. I pulled Kratos's podgy whole weight from the beast before it toppled entire. I'm tired, Kratos said, his voice a mosquito's very whine. We're both tired, I told him, then cast glance at the burrow. We're all tired, especially our friend, I said. I shared what I hoped was a commiserating glance with the burrow. Surely enough, the burrow shot back a look that said, with complete certainty, that he hated Kratos too. I got poked by a Kratos back there, Kratos said, and for a moment I hoped the madness had taken hold of his brain shortly to fell him. Firstly, we've all been bepoked, said I, and secondly, it's a cactus. You have to stop renaming everything you see, Kratos. Pretty neat, though, he said. Kratos, Kratos, Kratos. I'm everywhere. I deigned not respond to this horsery. I gave the burrow a pat and placed myself bodily between Kratos and he. 
He pulled the cactus spine from his large leg and followed on. The walls of the canyon grew taller as we went deeper within, creating a sense of delirium in me, as if the hard earth itself were growing elastic, another trick of dastardly death. Soon enough, the canyon's rim was within heavens, and we were lower than all. How deep shall we go, I asked those walls, imperious in their ascension, as if a path to higher, highest heights. I beseech them that they ought to reveal their mysteries, but they were nothing if not silence incarnate. What saw I in those natural tall walls? Perhaps the salvation, away from this desert, this life, this bead-eyed ever-fool who refused to die. How many times had Kratos escaped sure demise, only to emerge even less scathed than previous? How long would Kratos torment my days? Were it better for me to perish first, never to know his labored thought and breath? Or should rather I be the one to watch him die, if only to savor his furthest rotten gasps? The thought lingers as I wait in the shadow of this valley of this death. And then I see the stone. The stone is great in heft and virtue, yet fits well in my hand as I grapple it. I watch Kratos ahead, as fool as any stone, squatting and raising his body against the rock wall, scratching his back self like an incorrigible bear. Meanwhile, the moon glowers above head, reaching its apogee of cruel bright light. It's in this moment I make the rock throne. It looses itself from my hand, a fat javelin, as it arcs correctly towards Kratos' head. At that moment, Kratos picks up the burrow as if hoisting a birth-slick babe and expels his nose into the burrow. The burrow can only chuff and pray for fates greater as the rock connects with its head. The last image I see before the force of the throw sends me unconscious, exhaustion embracing me as I fall face first flat down and fainting. I awake in arms stronger than I'd anticipated. The face I see first is Kratos's. His inimitable face cleft, his coward's dewlap, his lack of teeth. His is a face perverted with ruin. But then I see, and I'm forced to understand, that the hard scrabble lines cleaving his countenance are mimicked only perfectly by the desert surrounding. His stubbled hair as sharp as any yucca. I see then that Kratos is Cactus, and Cactus is Kratos, and I am wrong, and what I know becomes now what I had known, when what I had known was only ever falsehoods and lies espoused and upheld by myself, and what more recourse have I than to admit my great errors? But before I can do so, I scour around and see that we're on top of the canyon, and out of the canyon, and the break of day is nigh, and there too in the sear hell ground is the tiniest crack with water within, and I believe nothing I see, but the world is true, and there is Kratos in the burrow, the burrow surviving anon, 
both of them wilting me with their looks, for I am the one who is not ready. I am owed this to gratis. I am debt, and so I stand, and led by gratis, walk I, walk I. And now it's time for a new segment called Behind Closed Doors, the inner workings of Out of All Doors. A new segment of the podcast where we fill you, the listeners, in on some behind-the-scenes privileged information. You'll get to hear a bit about how this whole podcasting process works. A little glimpse behind the curtain. Today we have a very, very special guest. He's traveled an extremely long way to be here. You might even say from beyond the grave, ladies and gentlemen... It's me, Jason, in the flesh. And no, I'm not a zombie or a ghost or a vampire or a werewolf or a spooky alien. Right. As you may recall, a few episodes ago, Jason was murdered. Here's a clip. And before that, you surely knew me for my most wonderful guest spots where I sang exquisite little duos with Adam, just like this one. Play the clip. Bye, now we're cooking! So if you say pajamas, and I say pajamas, I'll wear pajamas and give up pajamas. Yep. But what you don't know about Jason, who only appears to be back from the dead, is that from the beginning, we were playing a little bit of a trick on you, the listener. Right, Jason? Right. A little bit of audio gimmickry, if you will. Yeah, why don't you go ahead and explain there, Jason, after being shot in the head, no less. Well... The truth of the matter is, I never was shot in the head. Furthermore, there never really was a Jason, because in reality, Jason was nothing more than a work of fiction, a flight of fancy brought to life by professional impressionist... Casey By. Hello, listeners. That's right. Mind's blown, huh? So, Casey, the man behind Jason is also, by the way, known for both his impression-based stand-up comedy and for his incredibly believable Barbara Streisand impersonation act. Hello, gorgeous. <laughs> it's like I'm in the room with Babs. <sighs> well, anyway, the multi-talented, beyond-gifted impressionist Casey By was the one who made Jason a reality. So, Casey, why don't you tell us a bit about how you go about creating a character like Jason? Well, to get Jason just right, and you listening at home can give this a shot, and I'll bet with a little practice you can get pretty darn close yourself. You start with... Sherlock Holmes himself, Benedict Cumberbatch, who is British? Quite, quite, my lady. Mind the gap, chim chimney, chim chim chiru. Then you add a little bit of TV's Edith Bunker, Archie, and put them together. It's me, Jason! Who is really just a character who revolves around the conceit that his voice is extremely similar to Adam Drentz. So you... Start with Jason up here, and then you drop a quaalude in it, and you have Adam Drent, podcast host of Out of All Doors. And that's really the only difference. Other than that Jason is a complete train wreck of a human being, while I am not. Well. So, tell us about some of your other characters, Casey. Might there be anyone else our avid listeners might recognize? Hint, hint, um, there is. Of course. Let's see if you can pick this one up. Will you start with ex-Mr. Kim Basinger himself, star of Glengarry Glen Ross, 
Alec Baldwin, and you slowly raise it up about an octave and then... Me, little dollop. What's up, y'all? I like sauces. Yeah! And that's why you'll never see Lil Dollop and Jason in the same room, people. So, Casey, once you have the voice of the character down, what's next? Well, let's say I was doing Jason. I would start by doing some vocal warm-ups like... Moo, 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 ma, 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 me, 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 ma, 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 me, 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 ma, 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 Okay, and then what? I'd get in the headspace the character would currently be in. Oh, so like when Jason was popping a lot of pills, then I would be popping a lot of pills, of course. Why? Sure, it's called the method, Adam. It's an actor thing. Like how I'm currently staying in character as Jason. It's tried and true. It's how Heath Ledger died, so you know it works. Oh, speaking of, so if I were to do Jason doing his Harley Quinn from Batman impression, that's where the Edith Bunker accent really shines, eh there, Mr. J? <clears throat> well, from, from there, it's not that far for Jason to actually do a really solid impression of Audrey from Little Shop of Horrors, either. Uh, tweak the accent a bit, and that would go a little something like this. Um, Adam, you do the Seymour parts. Uh, okay. One, two, three, four. Suddenly, Jason! Suddenly, Jason! Keep purified! Keep purified, you! Ah, good fun. Well, before we wrap up the first edition of Behind Closed Doors, the inner workings of Out of All Doors, which I should mention, Casey here will be taking over hosting duties for next episode. Are there any other of your amazing impressions you'd like to share with us? Oh, um, uh, I can do Squall. You can do Squall from our temporarily on hiatus Squall Takes the Bait segment? Yeah, uh, I've been working on it. Uh, check it out. Here's Squall. The uh, great feminist Gloria Steinem said, a, man, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. I believe that's false, because forest islands are dumb Every woman needs a man. Yeah, that's definitely Squall. All right, anything else? Oh, uh, this is a big one, of course. Um, here's a little behind-the-scenes tidbit for the fans. So, you know the opening theme song. Uh, if you listen really closely, you'll notice that the entire orchestration is, in reality, me doing impressions of instruments. It's all done vocally. Really? Yeah, totally. Huh. Well, Casey, why don't you give us a final sign-off as Jason, and then we'll close this first segment of Behind Closed Doors, the inner workings of Out of All Doors, with an extra close listen to the Out of All Doors opening theme to see if we can pick out your vocal stylings. Sounds good, Adam. Well, this is a goodbye from your old pal Jason. I may not have been shot in the back of the head, but I was completely made up and fake, so it didn't really matter. 
Make sure to give Casey's new segment a listen when he takes over Behind Closed Doors, the inner workings of Out of All Doors segment next month. Treat him as well as you've all treated me. Now perk up those ears, knowing now that the music you're about to hear, the song you've heard at the top of each and every single episode of Out of All Doors, the music you've become so familiar with, is actually the work of just one man's voice. Listen close, and you just may be able to tell. And thank you for believing. When we started our hike, the day was bright and the sky was free of clouds. But soon after we started our hike, the clouds rolled in and the brightness of the day was dimmed thereby, and the clouds became darker. Then one of us felt a drop of rain, then another of us felt another drop of rain, and then a third one of us felt yet another drop of rain, and so on until each of us had felt a drop of rain, and we all came to the conclusion that it was starting to rain, and that we should find shelter as swiftly as possible, bearing in mind the inherent limitations of our mortal human bodies. We spy an old cabin among the trees, and we hurry inside, finding it dank and musty, but well stocked with firewood, though how long it's been here we cannot say. We start a fire in the fireplace, and as the first flickering flames begin to lick at the logs, a tendril of smoke worms its way up the chimney, and with a powerful whoosh, a flapping black mass comes pouring down out of the chimney and into the room. We have entered the battery. The man was a bat portraitist. The one major difficulty in his life was getting bats to pose for their portraits. The only time they would stay motionless long enough for him to paint them was when they were hanging upside down, all folded up in their wings, and those didn't make for very good portraits. He couldn't even see their faces. Anyway, there was no solution to this one fundamental problem, and he never completed a single portrait of a bat, and he was an unequivocal failure. At his funeral, which was lengthy, a lone bat perched upright, face fully exposed at the head of the bat portraitist's closed casket. An amateur artist in attendance noticed the opportunity and executed a detailed drawing of the bat in his sketchbook. But when he was finished and the bat flew away, most people thought the portrait of the bat looked more like a misshapen little man with fake wings he made for himself out of a tarp or tarps. Everyone agreed that the bat portraitist would have done a better job, although none of them would have bet their lives on it since there existed no evidence of his talent. Then they lowered him into his grave. You know what was on his headstone? A horrendous etching of a bat. It looked like a rat with its face squashed and two tattered umbrellas stuck to its back, probably held in place by sticky garbage. And so the etching served as a lasting testament to the fact that no one was capable of capturing the likeness of a bat as well as the dead bat portraitist probably would have been able to if the bats had been willing to sit still. The man was a bat photographer. His aim was always to capture the essence of a bat with his camera, or so he said, many times daily, to anyone who would listen, 
even if their facial expressions clearly indicated that they would rather talk about something else or even nothing at all. But his pictures were often either blurry, too dark, or both. But then it struck him. Perhaps the essence of a bat was a combination of blurriness and darkness. Maybe his conventionally poor photographs were actually flawless representations of the essence of a bat. He decided to believe this. Then he set about increasing his output of dark, blurry photographs of bats, displaying them in galleries and exchanging them for currency, which he called selling to buyers. One evening, as he was photographing a few bats at dusk as they flitted about over a field of ripening wheat, one of the bats swooped down, snatched his camera away from him, and then snapped a picture of him from close range before dropping the camera back into his hands and flying away. Later, when the bat photographer developed the pictures from that evening, he saw that these pictures of bats were neither blurry nor dark somehow. These were clear as day, and the bat's faces were distinct and visible, and on each bat's face was a personal accusation that pierced the bat photographer straight through his soul. Then he saw the picture the bat had taken of him, and his heart sank, for at that moment he realized that the bat had perfectly captured his essence in a picture in a way that he had never truly captured the essence of a bat in a picture. For in this picture of him, taken by the bat, he looked like a befuddled, lazy, defensive old fraud attempting to mask his self-doubt with a veneer of arrogant bluster. The woman was a bat singer. She sang songs for and about bats. It was hard to tell what the bats thought of her songs, but people who didn't like bats didn't like her songs. But she really wanted to know what bats thought of her songs, although she knew it would crush her if she were to find out they didn't like them very much. If she were to find out they hated her songs, she would also be crushed, but the severity of that crushing would be exponentially more severe. But the truth was even worse. None of the bats had ever noticed her songs, and most of them had never noticed her. Some who had noticed her thought she was a fountain, Others thought she was a plant, and others thought she was an acoustic guitar with a large, strange growth on its back. None of them thought she was a human woman playing songs for and about them. Well, there was one bat who had noticed the bat singer's songs, but that bat completely misinterpreted the songs as coded directives from a supernatural power, and, by following these directives, the bat was driven to madness, which it handled with grace and aplomb. Then, one day, the bat singer found five empty cocoons arranged in a zigzag line on her front porch, which she assumed was an award from the bats for excellence in songwriting, like the bat version of a Grammy. But she was wrong. It was actually a mocking award from the neighborhood rabbits given annually to the person with the worst yard. Bats don't give out awards, sincere, mocking, or otherwise. The bat was an artist among bats, although we have no equivalent of its art among human art forms. The bat's art involved the emission of high-frequency sounds and acrobatic flight maneuvers, but it's not correct to correlate these two elements of its art to singing and dancing, nor were those the only elements of its art, much of which occurred on a level not so much beyond human understanding as outside of it. The artist bat's art also had a practical side, like architecture in that it made the bat a more formidable eater, although that was not the bat's primary reason for engaging in its art. The artist bat did not live an eccentric lifestyle relative to other bats. The artist bat was not competitive, nor did it strive to set records. 
The other bats perhaps did not appreciate the bat artist while it was among them, but it never sought their appreciation anyway, so why should that fact bother us? Nevertheless, it does bother us, but that's on us, not on the bat artist or its fellow bats. There are some things we will never understand about bats, and we should learn to accept that. You want to know how the bat artist died? It died doing its art, probably too fervently. On a spring night similar to this one, if one disregards this spring night's utter lack of transcendent bat art. Or maybe I'm way off. Maybe there are more bat artists about which we know nothing. Maybe all bats are bat artists. Maybe the only artists are bat artists. We pour our water bottles out on the timid fire in the fireplace and the flames are extinguished and soon the smoke dissipates and the great cloud of bats disappears back up inside of the chimney. We would never want to live in a chimney, but then a great cloud of bats would probably never want to go on a bike ride. Outside, the rain continues to fall, but that's all right. We should keep moving anyway. I mean, we all packed our ponchos, which many reviews called the best ponchos for most rain. Although many of these same reviews also called our ponchos the worst ponchos for very specific kinds of rain. Hopefully this rain is the sum of that kind of rain. As we open the door of the cabin, we look back over our shoulder at the fireplace and see no sign of the bats. But we know they're there because of our properly functioning short-term memories. We step back out into the rain and leave the battery. Do you have the rainy day blues? Well, I know of very few cures for that particular ailment, which is fine because it's only lethal if you're deathly allergic to melancholy, which is quite rare. But one cure I do know is to buy yourself a pair of glasses frames from featherwoodframes.com. They're made from locally sourced logs on pedal-powered machines by guys you'd be happy to support if you knew about their many positive traits and characteristics. But don't do it for them, do it for you in your case of the rainy day blues that we already established that you have. Or, better yet, do it because whether happy or sad, there's not a mood that exists that doesn't go well with a beautiful pair of featherwood frames. For example, maybe you love rainy days. Maybe rainy days give you a severe case of the rainy day... There's no way to end that that isn't obnoxious. So let's just say rainy days make you happy. How are you going to celebrate? By purchasing something other than a pair of handsome handcrafted featherwood frames? Don't come crying to me when your unwise purchase turns to ashes in your mouth and your rainy day good mood turns into a case of the rainy day blues. Maybe then you'll heed my words. Maybe then you'll purchase a pair of featherwood frames from featherwoodframes.com. And if you are one of the few who's deathly allergic to melancholy, then featherwood frames will have saved your life and you will owe them and me for my role as facilitator forever. Featherwood frames. Light as a feather would. And now we're going to check in again with Harrison Blum as he shares with us the experience of plunging back into the world of amateur bird watching. Hello, listeners and Eleanor. Don listened to my last episode and found the podcast not without its merits. As a result, he gifted me the $96 I needed for new hiking boots, on the condition that I repay him in full, plus interest, before Mother's Day. Unfortunately, we couldn't come to terms on a gift repayment plan for the binoculars, so for now I'll just squint when necessary. 
As Don says, you can't build a house in one day. In the interim, I'll work with what I have, my bird guide, which I suppose is the foundation of the house, and my hiking boots, which in this scenario are the basement, or sub-basement depending on how tall you are. Although I suppose everyone's nearly the same height when you measure vertically, soles to ankles, so for the boots as basement analogy, let's just say basement instead of sub-basement, and tall people, or heavily geared people, can build additional floors above the basement to accommodate for their height, or gear-wise, for the amount of bird-watching equipment they possess. If, for example, we were to use my one-bedroom apartment as the model, my boots would be the linoleum in my kitchen, as the floor slopes slightly toward the back of the apartment. Coincidentally, the kitchen is also where I spent the last couple of weeks breaking in my new boots, as the internet suggests not venturing too far without first softening the faux leather. This morning, with my boots sufficiently broken in, I walked to the patch of trees just beyond the municipal electrical box at the far end of our lot. After sitting in the grass for a few minutes, I heard the kind of bird noise you hear when you imagine bird noises. If it helps, I'll try to replicate it for you. Okay, let's just imagine I'm whistling beautifully, as if I were a bird. I listened for a while and jotted down some free-form word associations based on the emotional reactions I was having to the song. Things like beautiful, song-like, and pretty bird song. I googled bird sounds at the library for a few hours and learned that I'd ear-spotted a song sparrow. Song sparrows are indigenous to the area, although based on the song I'd have guessed he was from somewhere more exotic. But if you think about it, Iowa is probably pretty exotic to places that aren't Iowa like China or Arizona. The song Sparrow serenades his mate with more than 20 different songs, and more than 1,000 variations on those songs. In a way, song sparrows are the iPods of the bird world, but also better, in the sense that iPods can't improvise, they can only shuffle. Song sparrows are also iPod-like in that they repeat the same song over and over, before switching to a different song. In short, these are the songbirds for you if you're interested in variety, but not too much variety, maybe a one-gig iPod. Like if you wanted to listen to your favorite song ten times in a row before listening to something else ten times in a row. Another fun fact is that song sparrows are able to distinguish their neighbors from strangers. Females prefer the songs of their neighbors to the songs of birds they don't yet know. But what they really prefer are the songs of their mates they flock to those songs above all others. So, for example, if I was a song sparrow, and I used to live with a bird, but then no longer lived with that bird, that bird would still prefer my song to a totally new song. Like if I, say, stood at the gates of a golf community outside of Phoenix and sang Crocodile Rock, and the other bird, my former nestmate, heard me singing Crocodile Rock through the gates she would know that the person or bird behind those gates was her ex-husband and not a total stranger. And from that knowledge, based on the crocodile rock, she would likely determine that she'd prefer to go out in search of her ex-husband standing knee-deep in the rose bushes, rather than sitting on the love seat with her rebound bow, who, in bird terms, we can all agree, is more like a stranger, a bird acquaintance at best. 
In the end, the mate's songs are the only true songs, even if the mate is an ex-mate. Just something to think about, I suppose. Please tell Eleanor I say hello. Love, Harrison. And now again, here's Grang Lynch with the third installment of The Chronicles of Corndog. My family and I lived with the corndog five miles northwest of LaRue, Ohio, population 725. LaRue was first settled in 1840 by its namesake, Major William LaRue. Major LaRue's military acumen is lost to history, but there's no dispute concerning his skill in choosing unsettled swaths of Ohio wilderness on which to found villages. It was horrendous. The 340 acres that Major LaRue purchased in 1840, and which eventually became my hometown, were and are among the lowest ground in the state, and serve as a natural drainage basin for most of what is now Marion County. This, together with the fact that the Scioto River bends into an oxbow in the middle of town, means that LaRue has flooded, catastrophically, at least once every five years since time immemorial. In its 175 years of existence, LaRue has been home to only three residents notable enough to be remembered by history. The first was Dr. Charles Sawyer, a homeopathic physician whose false diagnosis of President Harding is believed to have caused the latter's early death. The second was Olympic champion Jim Thorpe, who played and coached for the Oorang Indians, an honest-to-God NFL football team that called LaRue home during the two losing seasons of its existence in the early 20s. The third, of course, was Corndog, the hero of these chronicles. At the high point of its history, LaRue had a thriving downtown full of shops and offices. Nowadays, though, only a few businesses are left. A barber shop, a branch of the Richwood Bank, Cooney's, the local bar, and Lynch's Cash and Carry, the small grocery store and butcher shop that my dad has owned and operated since the mid-80s. My dad was also a trustee of Montgomery Township, the unincorporated area just north of LaRue where our house was located. Not a lot happened in Montgomery Township, so the trustees had only two real responsibilities. To dig the graves in the cemetery, and to mow the grass in the ditches along the township roads in the summer. Dad ran for the position primarily for the government employee health insurance that he would accrue after five years of service. He'd gotten the idea from my Uncle Pearl, who had been a trustee, I believe, since the mid-60s, when the cemetery was only a quarter of its current size and the citizens of Montgomery Township much less inclined to complain about unmowed ditches. In his 50 years as trustee, Pearl had toppled four tractors into ditches and destroyed nearly a dozen bush hogs by running them into poles, trees, and signs. Yet, despite the considerable unnecessary costs he inflicted on the taxpayers of Montgomery Township, he was re-elected year after year after year. Dad figured that it couldn't be all that difficult to be elected to the seat vacated when Herb Johnson died, and he was right. One of the more memorable events in LaRue's history came in 2011, when the Weather Channel chose LaRue to be the focus of its monthly Tiny Town Tribute segment. Tiny Town Tribute was a bi-monthly, or semi-monthly, whichever one means every two months, special in which the Weather Channel would devote a full 90 minutes of uninterrupted airtime to the forecast for a municipality of 1,000 or fewer residents as of the most recent U.S. Census. 
given the notably high ratio of scheduled program time to relevant meteorological information, one might have expected Tiny Town tributes to include non-weather-related segments, profiles of local businesses, interviews with residents, reports on recent successes of the high school sports teams. But Sarah Kingman, the show's creator and executive producer, felt that this would compromise the network's commitment to the broadcasting mission stated in the oft-repeated tagline, All Forecasts, All the Time. Instead, Tiny Town Tributes filled its 90 minutes with weather reports that were breathtakingly precise, confident, and scientifically disreputable. A past tribute, for example, had predicted that a thunderstorm would knock out the power in Willow Bend, Iowa, between the hours of 7 and 10 p.m. on May 12, 2026. Another declared that a rainy summer in Halstead, Connecticut, would lead Mrs. Peterson's garden to yield exactly 13 more tomatoes than it had the previous year. The process by which Tiny Towns were selected to appear on Tiny Town Tribute was similar to that used to choose Olympic host cities. Representatives from each candidate town were required to fly, at their own expense, to the Weather Channel headquarters in Atlanta and make a pitch to the selection committee as to why their town was deserving of the honor. LaRue had secured their selection by presenting the committee with an edict, signed by the mayor, to be effected immediately upon LaRue's selection. The edict read as follows. Whereas the belief that one's hometown is noteworthy is a source of ennobling sentiments of dignity, pride, and self-respect, whereas the producers of Tiny Town Tribute so deftly foster this belief through their careful and detailed forecasts provided to the residents of the selected towns, and whereas such labors can be sufficiently appreciated only when their fruits are attended by an appropriate degree of anticipation, therefore be it resolved that... Should LaRue be selected as the subject of a tiny town tribute, no resident of the village of LaRue shall watch, listen to, read, or otherwise ingest any meteorological forecast for a full 30 days prior to the airing of the aforementioned program, punishable by a fine of up to $500. The morning of the day LaRue's tiny town tribute was to air, the village was electric. The waitresses at Cooney's had pooled their tips and used the money to buy a new flat-screen TV, and they had cleared out all the tables to make room for folding chairs in front of it. School was to be let out after a half-day, despite the fact that the show wasn't going to air until 6.30. The township trustees, eager to make the area presentable on this important day, were busy tidying things up. Dad was charged with riding all the toppled headstones in the cemetery, Butch Winslow was rearranging the rusted traffic lights in the parking lot behind the township pole barn into a slightly less disorderly pile, and despite the protests of the other trustees being more vocal than usual, Pearl, as he always did, was mowing the ditches. It was around five o'clock that Dad got the call that Pearl had flipped the tractor on Riley Road. It wasn't until he arrived on the scene, though, that he realized the severity of the situation. Pearl had a broken wrist, but that was to be expected. The real issue was that he had taken out a telephone pole, one charged with holding up the only cable line running into town. The crowd at Cooney's, Mark the barber at his shop, Dad's employees huddled around the TV in the back room of the grocery store were all now staring at the same error message. No signal detected. At home, my mother began to cry, and Corndog, sitting beside her on the couch, balled his basset hound ball in empathy with her. This was the scene my dad encountered when he arrived home, 
found some ice for Pearl's wrist, and led him to the back bedroom to rest. That was around 7. It was around 7.30 when the rain started. By 7.45 it had become torrential, and by 9 the water had reached over the steps on the Ridgewood Banking Company building and begun to seep into the lobby. Unprepared as they were, the people in town had no choice but to flee before the water rose higher than their cars and trucks could pass them. They fled north, toward the high ground, toward my parents' house. They fled along Riley Road, the only passable northbound road, and as they did, they saw the overturned tractor and learned the cause of their unpreparedness. The first person to show up at my parents' house was Skip Johnson, Herb's middle-aged son. By the time my dad opened the door, Skip was already mid-rant about how this never would have happened if his father were still alive, and how this whole ordeal was the mayor's fault for failing to grant his father's request to have Pearl banned by mayoral decree from ever mowing a ditch in service of the township again. By ten o'clock, there were two dozen cars parked in and along our driveway. My dad, standing on the front porch and shouting over the rain, was growing increasingly unable to control the crowd. Nevertheless, things might have died down of their own accord had Pearl not left the back bedroom to go ask my mother for an aspirin. One of the townspeople saw him through the window and began trying to force her way into the house. Dad slammed the door shut and, wishing he had replaced the deadbolt when it rusted out a few years prior, leaned with all his weight against the door to delay the mob from bursting through as long as he could. Meanwhile, Pearl, entirely oblivious to the scene going on in the front yard, sat on the bed in the back bedroom and thumbed through a Beckett magazine I had bought when I was in elementary school. He heard a knock at the back door, rose, walked slowly towards it, and opened it with his good wrist. There, being soaked by the rain, was Corndog. And Corndog, with a knowing look that only he was capable of, signaled to Pearl to follow him out into the rain. And Pearl, with a lack of appreciation of his surroundings that only he was capable of, obliged. He followed Corndog through the backyard to the barn. On the floor of the barn, Corndog had piled together three bales worth of loose straw, his doggy bed, and the cushions from all my parents and the neighboring house's patio furniture into something resembling a gigantic mattress. Next to it were two half-full bottles of water and a box of formerly frozen, but now thawed, soft pretzels. Uncle Pearl took a deep drink from one of the bottles and laid down. Thank you, Corndog, he said, and fell asleep. As the rain falls and we really start to get in the swing of spring, it becomes more and more evident that now is the time to get that flower or vegetable garden going. Out of All Doors knows it, and so does Gentleman's Mills, who has again brought us a spectacular variety of gardening supplies sure to make your garden the envy of everyone who sees it and who happens to care about the relative quality of various gardens. Here is just a small selection of the Gentleman's Mills products you'll be dying to purchase. 
faux-oil well. It's a faux-oil well. A papier-mâché oil derrick is placed in the garden as an excuse to completely abandon your gardening efforts this year. Comes with a security camera to document your neighbor's foolish envy. Gift certificate. A giftee shows up in the garden, and he is owed one of your watermelons. Angelic angler. Cast his line forth, and behold, he's hooked a prize onion from the depths of your soil. Pluck all carrots prior to purchasing, because those are this beautiful sweetheart's favorite. Herbicide SWAT team. At a surprise hour late in the growing season, a gentleman's mill's co-founder phones you a fun bomb threat. Sprint to the garden, find the bomb, and defuse it ASAP. Or else herbicide sprays everywhere. Digging may be required. Compulsive gardener. We'll warn you to garden responsibly, but we'll also let you pay us for seven tons of seeds for your meager plot of land. Mouth full of soil. We tried it when we were your age, so now you've got to prove yourself too, you greenhorn green thumb. Anonymous spade. For those who simply want to call a spade, a spade. Garden to table. A master craftsman constructs an elegant oak table beneath your aging tomato plant. The Gentleman's Mills Chorus fills the garden air with the funeral favorite hymn in the garden. As your tomato plant serenely slips from this earthly realm and the last tomato of the season drops to the table from natural causes. Manure Gatherer, a machine that does its best to gather up all the manure you mistakenly spread over the wrong area. Total Recall Garden Edition. This Total Recall DVD box has a leaf on it. The leaf is unusually adherent to the box. Oopsie whoopsie flowers. This is a set of flowers that you plant petals down in the ground. The flower petals have been attached to special support mechanisms so that the root structures can stand in the air, spindly and proud. Scare Craig. Crows hate Craig. Bungee Gardening. We construct an 80-foot platform above your garden, hook you up, and allow you to choose whichever implements you'd like to carry. Plunge and garden your best. Note, you will probably only reach your garden on your first two bounces, after which your gardening season is over. Uncle O'Flanagan's Vine Manipulator. Your vines have never seen the likes of Uncle O'Flanagan again. His vine manipulator will have your vines crying uncle. O'Flanagan, that is. Talking tomato. You can't wait for this tomato to shut up. GM oats. These oats were genetically modified to be planted, grown, harvested, and placed on a computer keyboard to passionately and exaggeratedly defend themselves on social media. Chia Pet's Garden of Doom. Uh-oh, Chia Pet has found his way into a real wild garden with real wild plants and real wild animals. What will Chia Pet do? Chia Pet is going to die. From my cold dead hand seed collection. This collection of seeds comes held tightly in the palm of a dead man's hand. The hand has been surgically removed from the rest of the corpse and contains several different seeds. Pry open the cold dead fingers and plant away. Start your garden today. Imbued shovel. A pure-hearted gardener can pull the shovel from the stone and hold it forth, trembling with might, power, and fertility. You must pay for imbued shovel prior to attempting to draw it from the stone. Patience is for suckers, high-octane adventure gardening product. These plants are fully grown and ready for a real man to harvest them on day one. Must be planted within minutes of delivery. Jester's Wild Four-Piece Gardening Set. This four-piece set features different digging implements. Here you have not just a spade, but also a heart, a club, and a diamond. Go ahead and dig around with these weird implements. The club is useless. Punch the ground and curse the earth for her continued infertility. A new gardening board game from Gentleman's Mills. Stop and let the roses smell you. A Gentleman's Mills signature cologne designed to delight the senses of your flowers as you wear it among them. Till until until. 
till the soil of your garden until the sand in the official gentleman's mills hourglass runs out. Then undo all the work you just did. This is a wordplay-based product with little practical value. Close your eyes. Try to relax. Yes, the point of the visualization exercise is to help you relax, and I'm not trying to shirk that responsibility. But the further you can go to relax yourself before we even start, then the greater likelihood there is of the visualization exercise being effective, right? Who knows? Maybe I could get you to all new levels of relaxation. I'm just saying, this shouldn't be me dragging you into relaxation. This should be a team effort. But yes, the least you can do is close your eyes. You are in a garage. The garage door is open. You sit in a lawn chair and watch the thunderstorm outside, the rain pouring down on your driveway, and your yard, and your neighborhood, your town, your county, your state. You really don't know how far this thunderstorm stretches, but the rain has been falling hard and steady for over an hour, drumming on the roof of your garage, filling your gutters, rushing through your downspouts, soaking everything it touches, sucked up by your thirsty lawn and flower beds, small rivers of water flowing along curves into storm drains, where they cascade down and continue through underground tunnels and pipes, swirling and sloshing beneath you and away. Every so often you hear the rumble of thunder. You feel it vibrate something inside of you, something primal, something untamed and untamable. Something you should definitely not attempt to access if you're ever invited to a formal event where organizers and other guests would prefer that you not act primal, such as a traditional wedding, or most non-traditional weddings. You enjoy watching the rain. The sound of the storm soothes you. The smell of the rain soothes the parts of you that the sound of the storm either can't or won't soothe. And it looks soothing, too. This nourishing spring storm and the cool air coming into the garage brushes against your skin like a gentleman's handkerchief after he's accidentally splashed good red wine across his date's exposed forearms. But you then breathe the air in, whereas a gentleman's date would not inhale his handkerchief under normal circumstances. The interior of the garage around you is comfortably cluttered with many lawnmowers, more push than riding, but plenty of both. Some of the lawnmowers can't actually cut grass, but they do everything else you'd ever want from a lawnmower as perfectly as the day they were made, which isn't to imply that they were all made on the same day. There isn't any room for a vehicle in the garage because it's overrun with lawnmowers, so your car is parked in the driveway, getting a good, persistent washing from the rain, which it needed because it was dirty, and someone had written, Park me where the rain can wash me off in the dust on the back of the car probably using a finger to form the letters, but there are many implements that could achieve the same effect. You parked your car on the far side of the driveway so that it wouldn't obstruct your view of the storm. You feel soothed by the comforting presence of your many lawnmowers and by the ever-increasing cleanliness of your car, which has a vanity plate that reads, One honk is plenty, thank you, and have a nice day which cost you a pretty penny considering you had to not only pay for the vanity plate, but you also had to bribe the government into relaxing the rules concerning how many letters you could have on a vanity plate, and you had to pay for the upgrade for the state's license plate-making machine to make it capable of rendering commas on a license plate. 
You take a sip of cold, whole milk from your crabapple red guzzling mug, and you feel the milk do its extra special work, coating your esophagus with its milkness, chilling your heart, charming its way into the food matter in your stomach. And then, out in the rain, you see a figure, a human shape, difficult to make out in the downpour, but definitely a human shape, walking in the street in the rain. You rise from your lawn chair, straining your eyes for a better look. Who is that person out there in the rain, and where is his or her umbrella? Is he or she wearing a raincoat? How about galoshes? How about a waterproof hat? You can't tell from here in your garage, and this is one area in which your many lawnmowers can't really help you, not even the riding ones. Hello? You call? Would you like to come in out of the rain? The figure stops walking, but makes no move to come toward the garage. You can't even tell if he or she is facing you or not. You decide to try calling some more stuff. Are you wet? What's your name? Are you dry? Do you own an umbrella? Does my car look clean from that angle? Do you like rain? How old do you think I am? Do you like lawnmowers? The person in the rain responds to none of your questions, neither audibly nor via pantomime. Come get out of the rain, you call. I have lawnmowers and whole milk. You don't mention the fact that there's only one lawn chair. You cross that bridge when you come to it. But if a person is out walking in the rain and you offer that person a respite from the storm, that person will probably be happy just to have a roof overhead. He or she probably won't also demand the only chair. And then the figure, without making a sound, motions for you to come to it out into the rain. But you don't want to go out into the rain. You'll get all wet. No, you call back. You come here. The figure again motions for you to join it out in the rain. And then an idea worms its way through your brain. What if you did go out into the rain? Why shouldn't you? You used to enjoy playing in the rain when you were a child. Why not give it another try? The figure again motions for you to join it in the rain. And so you nod once, square your shoulders, and step out into the rain. It feels lovely. Cool, but not cold, refreshing, invigorating. You tilt your head back and close your eyes, feeling the rain on your face, but you don't do it long enough to drown like turkeys sometimes do. You walk down your driveway, your clothes getting soaked through, clinging to your award-winningly fit body, cold milk swishing in your belly. Your hair is also quite wet indeed. You peer through the rain, droplets dripping from your droopy eyelashes and you see the figure still motioning to you with languid movements of his or her arm. Your socks squelch in your shoes as you walk down the driveway and into the street. You realize you're going to need to put your shoes in the dryer with your clothes when you go inside, and you hope that they won't make a racket tumbling around in there, but you know they will. They're incorrigible like that. You're almost to the figure, and what's strange is, the figure still looks gray and indistinct. You can't discern any more details about it now than you could when you were in the garage. Part of you wishes you'd brought at least two lawnmowers with you, just in case they might come in handy. When you're almost close enough to touch the figure, you pause to wipe the rain out of your eyes, and when you take your hand away, the figure is gone. Now where did he or she go? You look all around and there's no sign of anyone. Now you really wish you'd brought a couple lawnmowers with you. You feel like a fool standing out here all alone in the middle of the street in the rain with no lawnmowers. You step forward into the exact spot where the figure was standing and turn to look back at your garage. And as soon as you do, a shiver runs up your spine. 
then a tingle runs down your spine. Goosebumps appear in your flesh, and all of your arm and neck and leg hair peels itself away from your wet skin to stand on end, and you freeze in place. You know what's coming, but you also know there's no time to react. There's only time to know, and that's when the lightning bolt hits you, and your world goes hot, jangling, clanging, shuddering, crackling, pulsating white. When your senses return, you are still standing in the same spot in the street, and rain is still falling on you. Something has changed. Something deep and vital has occurred. Whatever that primal thing the thunder stirred inside of you was, the lightning blew it wide open, flooding your body with a relaxation as old as time and burning off all of your stress, worry, and clothes in the process, leaving you full of nothing but warm, focused, low-key, laid-back energy. Even the milk in your stomach has turned warm. Naked, you walk back to your garage, your bare feet sizzling in the puddles. You step out of the rain and into the garage, and, with water pooling around your feet on the oily cement, you survey your mighty assembly of lawnmowers, and they, in perfect harmony, respond. They hum, and you hum, and the air itself hums, and the thunder tries to hum too, but it can't, so it just rumbles. And now, listener, as you open your eyes, do not let your return to your daily life drain the calm of the lightning from you. Stand up, stretch, and take the peace of Out of All Doors with you, even when you're inside of one or more doors. Listening to the eighth episode of Out of All Doors. I'm Adam Drent, and I would like to thank Matt Martin, Andy Poppenfoos, JJ Evans, Casey By, Greg Lynch, and Aaron Eikenberry for their contributions, written, audible, and technical. And thanks to Casey By and JJ Evans for making all the music used in the show. If you'd like to get in touch for any reason, you can send emails to the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com or me personally at adamdrent at gmail.com. You can also call or text me at 574 518 1983. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm active on Twitter, too. I'm at HugePop. Here's another thing I'd love. If you went on iTunes and rated this podcast, maybe wrote a review, maybe even subscribed. And be sure to check out my website, HugePop.com, where you can find links to my other projects, including Bedtime Stories, One Man's World, and the music I make is The Mispronouncer. Bedtime Stories and One Man's World are also on iTunes if you search for them under podcasts, and you could rate and review those, too. And a Bedtime Stories app is also available for all smart-style phones. We'll be back in a month with Episode 9 of Out of All Doors.